Thanks for tuning in to the Glossy Podcast. I'm your host, Jill Manoff, and today I sit down with Nick Brown, co-founder and managing partner of Imaginary Ventures, a VC fund that invests in early-stage companies at the intersection of retail and technology. Imaginary's portfolio includes Glossier, Skims, Everlane, Farfetch, and many more brands that we all know and love. I wanted to ask Nick what's worthy of Imaginary's investment today and what lies ahead for the quote-unquote DTC brand as we once knew it. Hi, Nick. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Happy happy summer. Happy almost July. Right on. Well, to talk to me, we we just talked recently at our e-commerce forum, which so happy to have you again. Um, but the DTC brand, I mean, is that model? Was any brand ever just strictly direct? Direct. I mean, was that short lived? Very very short lived. Um, what? Tell me about the evolution and where it is now. Sure. So, you know, taking a step back, I think our our approach to investing in brand was always brand-led and product-led. So that was always our beginning point. I think the next question we asked ourselves for each business was, what's the right distribution model? Is that distribution model physical retail? Is that distribution model for wholesale? Is that distribution model a direct relationship with your customer through a dot-com? And I think... There was a period of time when uh, the two, you know, direct to consumer channel became super advantageous for brands. It was inexpensive to acquire customers through Facebook. Mobile was becoming more pervasive. People were spending more and more time on on those uh, devices, and so your ability to get in front of a customer. Um, you know, in real time and showcase and sell a product was very powerful. I also think you had an inherent um, period of time that the incumbents took before they sort of kind of got got speed in the digital universe and digital channels. So there was a, a, a first mover advantage. Um, like all things, I think that journey ran its course. And so uh, the incumbents got better um, performance marketing got more expensive, and the ecosystem got more saturated. Um, I think what none of us expected is how quickly all of that started to fall apart and the speed at which founders needed to start to pivot. So I think, you know, 18, 24 months ago, maybe even less, maybe 12 to 18 months ago, I think the ecosystem understood that um, inefficient businesses that are built online are not going to stand the test of time, that the investor ecosystem was not interested in investing in brands where all the money was going towards performance marketing. And in the end, the exceptional companies needed to be profitable. And that was a very different tune, a very different story and a very different narrative than everybody had been talking through the prior six, eight, 10 years. And adjustments are hard, adjustments are challenging. Um, and so, so when we think about it at Imaginary, it's less the D to C world has been doomed and more what's the right profitable way to scale my business. And that's going to change for every business. It's going to change, you know, during different moments in time. And, you know, I would argue that for most businesses, direct probably should be the most important channel that they're putting dollars and resources behind, but it shouldn't be the only one. 
And, you know, I think this will go and probably come full circle. I think there's so much concern around inefficiencies online and performance marketing costs that actually over the next 18 to 24 months, presumably as brands pull back, there should be more efficiency and, you know, companies with cash will be able to start taking advantage of those things in an opportunistic way. But we need a reset. I think that was very, very clear. And the reset is happening now. And it's it's going to be painful for many. But I do think that the companies that can be nimble and thoughtful will end up far stronger as a result of it. Right on. Nimble, nimble, word of the game. I feel like, like you said, the last two, two and a half years or so, like it's almost like brands, dirty little secrets, like prove detrimental. Like, are you, um, in terms of when you approach brands, when you start talking with brands, I'm sure you're very thorough in, in the, in talking with them and, and finding out how they operate. Um, but any, has anything changed in terms of what you want to know, what you're asking, um, to ensure that, you know, this company is safeguarded from the highs and lows, I guess. Great question. I, I feel like that's the answer to that is sort of changing by the week. Um, but some things that I think have changed a little bit, I think one processes are taking longer and I think sale processes are taking longer. Fundraising processes are taking longer. Um, people are being, investors are being, I don't want to say more thoughtful because that implies they weren't being thoughtful before. They are taking more time before they make a decision. Um, and that I think is a positive for all of us. Um, I think being able to um, take the time to be thoughtful about each opportunity and not worry that if you don't accelerate that speed, you will miss the deal is actually a blessing to all of us. Um, I think we've extended the windows of um, cash flow. So, you know, used to think, hey, how do we make sure that a company has 18 months of runway? I think you're looking at probably more like double that. How do we make sure that we can get to 36 months of runway um, and really be able to weather whatever happens over the next 12 to 18 months and make sure you have cash to be able to, to take advantage of the other side of it. Um, profitability is, uh, I think was always a focus for us. I think it's an even greater focus for us now. And I think it's a focus for everybody. Um, we have had a number of companies over the last six to 12 months um, kick off processes and profit has been probably the singular most important KPI that acquirers have been thinking about, um, probably above revenue growth. Um, so that that's certainly a distinction and a change. And, you know, I, I think a real, like a truly robust um, answer around what someone's product roadmap looks like and the pacing of your innovation is really important. I think we talked about this a little bit when we last spoke. I think the best consumer product companies are the companies that um, really think about brand launches as media. And part of their muscle is that they are trying to create new media every two weeks, every month, every two months, whatever that cadence of product drops is. I don't think that means that you should abuse that and have a new product every other day. But I do think that um, finding ways to be top of mind with the customer are really, really mission critical. 
Um, so that's, you know, for, for, for me, something really, really important. Yeah. And I would think that that drives more organic marketing as something's new. People are going to talk about it as opposed to like spending on a Facebook ad. Um, talk to me about that, that the danger of, of investing so heavily, um, in digital marketing and also uh, the changes in Facebook and Instagram, like in, in advertising, privacy laws, all of that, like, has that changed your world? Many questions in one. <laughs> uh, it's definitely changed our world. I would say pretty universally, Facebook is um, less productive for our companies than it was before. Um, so the answer to that is, for the most part, most companies are cutting back their performance marketing spend on Facebook. It's a pretty um, clear, linear uh, decision. Um, I have no... Uh, crystal ball as to how long that will last. I wish I did, but um, I think at least today, um, a reset is probably an important thing, and it's certainly something that we're seeing. Um, in terms of your question on overexposure in Facebook, I liken it to to any other form of advertising. I think similarly, if you had said to an investor 30 years ago that a brand was spending 40% of its net revenue dollars per year on magazine advertising, people would be, you know, highly concerned. Um, I think that never happened because the ability to sort of trace customer behavior and think about conversion was not optimized in the same kind of way it was for Facebook. And so in a way, the data that Facebook provided and the insight that the direct-to-consumer model allowed probably pushed people to further limits than you would have seen 20 or 30 years ago. But the same truth applies, which is that it's probably an inappropriate um, dollar to be, or series of dollars to be putting to work relative to the size of the overall business. And I think you see that when the model starts to correct itself. Um, it's very hard to uh, spend at those kind of levels and then see inefficiencies hit by 20, 30, 40, or 50% and protect the bottom line of your business. And if your business is already not profitable and suddenly, you know, that efficiency is going down by that, all you're doing is increasing burn. So it's, it's a tricky situation to get yourself in. You know, the answer is, I, I think if Facebook is an important and thoughtful part of your growth story, but not the only story, you're going to have a better chance at weathering any kind of reset um, than you would if you were overexposed. Yes. Well, there's so many news stories out there right now about VC funding, funding of any kind going to um, the unicorns, the big companies. Anyway, we're not seeing the investment we once did. You talked about the slowing down, being more thoughtful. Um, is it about investing less or just slowing the cadence? both um oh that's yeah i mean is it about investing less or slowing the cadence um i or think maybe just investing once less in one shot <laughs> when you do well, invest is it less so when we invest in a company we try and own a material piece of that company that's like between 10 and 25% of a business. That's the goal. Now, if we invest in a later stage company, it's normally a smaller ownership piece, but that's on the early stage side, the goal. In theory, um, today, 
one should be able to get um, more or the same ownership in a company for slightly less, given how the public market has reset. Um, you know, companies on the public side are worth half, 20, 30 percent of what they were before. So presumably you would see the same kind of pricing on the early stage side. That started to happen, although I think private markets always take a period of time to lag. Um, in the end, though, our responsibility is to find exceptional companies that we feel are unique, exceptional brands or exceptional brand enablers and pay market for them, right? And unlike the public markets, which are, you know, sort of changing in real time, there is a real lag on the private market side. And so, you know, I can sit here all day long and say this company should be worth X, but if five people are willing to pay Y for it, you know, I either need to pay that or I need to move on from the asset. And the challenge in the venture ecosystem, and this is very different for private equity, the challenge in the venture ecosystem is that generally one or two companies within a given fund make up the lion's share of your returns. So if you miss those companies, either because you're being slower or because you want to do fewer deals, that model um, kind of fundamentally changes. You know, I do think that vintages, right, the time in between, you know, how quickly venture capitalists uh, raised funds probably started to get a little quick and a little unhealthy. Um, so instead of raising capital every two to three years, people were raising capital every nine months to 18 months. Um, so some of this, I think, will just um, extend some of the uh, extend the life of the vintages back to where they were four or five years ago. Um, and, and that's, you know, I don't think that means that people are raising the bar necessarily. I don't think that means that people are being too slow. It's just a new approach to pacing and the market normalizing a little bit. Um, so I'm, I'm always, I'm always mindful of being extreme in these situations. Like I've heard some people say like, we're going to take six months off and not make any new investments. I, I'm not sure what that means exactly. Like we have a responsibility to find great companies in good time and bad times. Uh, we have to understand in real time what we're comfortable paying for those assets in those companies. And we have to be nimble in how we think about that. But I think we have a responsibility to do so. And, you know, if you look historically, the best performing venture funds typically have been funds that have emerged um, during difficult periods of time. So you look at the vintages that came about in 2009, 2010, 2011. You look at the vintages that came out in 2002, 2003. Like these were moments in time when people were very bearish on the venture ecosystem at large, where exceptional entrepreneurs had a harder time raising money and therefore probably really, really had to want it, right? Yeah. Um, and as a result, you know, the outliers were really unique. So I, I'm, I am hopeful that this will be a great time for innovation on the, on the entrepreneurial side, and I'm hopeful it'll be a great time for outsized returns for investors. I love this. Let's talk about those um, founders that would maybe be exceptional. They they went to bat for themselves anyway. They they won over um, investors at the time. Yeah, what do you look for in a founder? They're going to pull through. They're going to get through trouble times. They're going to fight. Whatever you look for. Um, 
I think you look for founders that have something to prove. I think most great founders have that in common. I think you look for founders that are not scared of hiring people that are better at them than them or than they are at a particular function. I think you look for founders that ideally take feedback well um, and listen. I think that's important. That doesn't mean they have to follow through with the advice you're giving them, but it means that they need to be thoughtful in listening to it and encouraging that feedback loop. Um, I think you, um, I think you look for founders that are nimble and who are willing to pivot during, during sort of difficult times. One that I always point to is a company that we invested in, in the kids space called camp, which, um, is, you know, physical experiences for kids. And uh, when COVID happened, um, stores were closed. And the last series of stores that were going to reopen was anything that was involving lots of small children in small spaces. And Ben, the founder, really saw what was coming up with COVID and pivoted the business towards more of a content sponsorship game so that he could weather that storm. Um, and now obviously has moved back in a post COVID era to the original goals that he had for, for, for sort of transforming kids entertainment. That's, that's what you want. Cause that's the difference between a founder folding and a founder surviving And those are the types of founders that are not only going to survive, but they're going to thrive in moments like that. So, so I always look for that. And, and I wish I had an answer for how I could quantify it before it happened. Right. Because sometimes in many cases, you don't, you don't really know till it happens, but you know, you can you can try from a pattern recognition standpoint. You can try and learn from past people they've worked with. You can try and find pockets in the business where they've needed to be, you know, nimble and seeing how quickly they've moved on that. Um, it's 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 like the difference between a test mentality and a stubborn mentality. The the, the stubborn mentality is hard. You end up wasting a lot of time. I find. Do you look for them to speak about their their plan, whether it's a, I don't know, a five-year plan or whether it is even the the cadence of their product rollout. You mentioned kind of um, how those moments stir marketing um, to say, you know, this is the plan, but, or if if this happens, we could do this, or I don't know, hints at them being nimble, or do you like, if, if their plan is too firm, is that a red flag or something like that? It's hard, right? Because so much of it is understanding that the output of what a founder shows you during a process is a result of many inputs that are given to them in terms of advice, right? So sometimes people are given the advice of create a five-year plan and do a, you know, discounted cash flow model and do a returns analysis, like that, that that is what investors are going to want to see. And if that's the feedback you're getting, and I'm sure there are many investors that, that, you know, want to see those things, even at the earliest of stages, then that's what you're going to do to, to, you know, to try and get a deal done. Um, so I, I am conscious that really good founders do their homework before they meet investors and there's no one playbook. And so you have to, you have to understand that it's all well-intentioned and, and honestly quite thought out in many cases. 
I, I do not believe in the detail of a five-year plan. I think it's hard enough to plan 12 to 24 months out. I think a five-year plan is virtually impossible. Um, I do think that a founder needs to be able to illustrate to me really articulately and really clearly how they are going to get to scale. And for us, generally speaking, that scale for an early stage company is $100 million um, plus within five years of net revenue. And I actually don't want to see that on a page. I mean, I can do the you know, four to 10 to 25 to 50 to 100. I can do that math. Um, what I really want to see is what's going to drive that. How much of that is wholesale? How much of that is your hero product? Um, how much of that is going to come from repeat? How much of that is going to come from international? Is there a physical retail component to it? How many launches, to your point, you know, just now are going to be required to justify that kind of growth cadence? Are you going to be able to move into, you know, different verticals? When are you going to do that? How big can those verticals become? So that's, that's really where I focus. I think it's very different if you're speaking to someone that's on a later stage. And we obviously make investments quite often um, in later stage businesses. But if if you're an early stage founder, which I imagine many of the people listening to this are, it, it's less about the detail of it and more about the vision of how you're going to hit scale. Because that's that's the hardest thing for everybody. I would say for every, you know, 20, 30, 40 companies that we see, one of them has the ability to hit that kind of scale. And so you want to be really thoughtful and really confident in your articulation of how you achieve that. Yeah. Who are you seeing? Where are you finding these companies? I, I'm sure after you're on our podcast, people are going to be reaching out to you left and right. <laughs> but um, are, are you a lot of inbound interest? Are you like just scrounging these um, worthy brands up? Well, you know, I always say... Founders are often connected and resourceful people, and um, you, you know, ideally, investors who do a lot of stuff in this ecosystem are well-networked people. So, I never encourage cold outreaches. Like I get them a lot. Uh, I'm sure many people get them a lot. It's always much more helpful when you find a data point of intersection that you're able to take advantage of. Um, now that's hard because that assumes some pre-existing network within this ecosystem that not everybody has. And I think we have to be mindful that that is not always the case. And so I always start with, all right, is there a way for you to creatively find a point of contact, either another portfolio company, someone in your network? It can be sort of anything that unlocks that door while also being mindful that there are exceptional entrepreneurs that don't have that toolkit in front of them today. And for those, I always suggest um, persistence. I always suggest like really clear um, uh, sort of, um, defined deliverables on what your goals are. So don't send someone a 60 page deck. No one's going to read it. Don't send, you know, four or five sentences. That isn't enough. How do you really tightly and succinctly underscore exactly what you're doing? 
And then, you know, in any space, there's a ton of rejection, right? It's, 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 um, it's human. I mean, uh, I think it happens to fund managers on the LP side. It happens to entrepreneurs. I think it's part of the ecosystem that we operate in. And so checking in is really important. Um, trying to get real clarity around, like once you've been in touch with someone, what is it that's important for you to see? Is it a certain growth metric? Is it um, a product hitting a certain degree of scale? Is it the business working within wholesale? Is it launching something new? Like what is it specifically that you want to see? And how do I, as often as I can, update you in real time on what that looks like in the form of an email or a fast phone call, whatever it is. Um, because, um, it's, you know, that's a very tactical individual. That's a very determined individual. And I think those are some of the skill sets that you want to see. Um, but outside of that, we meet founders all over the place. I mean, a lot of what we do is outbound. A lot of what we do is inbound. I have, gotten in touch with founders through calling customer service. I've gotten it through sending <laughs> Instagram directs. I've gotten it through LinkedIn. I've gotten it through cold phone calls, through referrals, introductory, like at like every, like you name it, I've nice. done it. Um, yeah. And often they respond and often they don't. That's life. Um, and then, you know, I, I really value, um, I really value more than anything. And again, I think you have to be super sensitive to this because it implies a entrepreneurial base that may be a, a replica or too similar uh, from what you're used to. And I think part of the opportunity for all of us is actually like looking outside of our groups of you know, founders, it's, it's hard to create change and, and, and be forward thinking if our community stays static. But I, I always, I have always felt that a referral from someone that we have backed continues to be the most powerful entry point because, you know, not only does that show that this is someone that they really believe in, that they're encouraging their partner to believe in, but it's someone who they believe will have a positive working relationship with us because they know that working relationship as a byproduct of living it every day. That makes great sense. Let's dig deep into one investment in particular, like a buzzy brand right now is Skims. Like, Why did an investment in Skims make sense for you guys? I think the real question is why not? Um, yeah. I think that had every ingredient to be an exceptional brand. Um, I think it had a passionate founder that um, cared deeply about shapewear, that had a um, long history of wearing shapewear and being expressive with shapewear. And, you know, Kim has been very public about the fact that she used to dye um, her, you know, her undergarments in different colors to match her skin tone. Um, this is someone who really lived and breathed the product for a long period of time, who understands her customer base and understands how to sell product to that customer base. And then you pair her with her other co-founders who have a long history in apparel, who uh, really understand popular culture and brand building and operations and sourcing. I think that married together um, created a very obvious blueprint for a brand that we wanted to get behind. 
Now, since then, I would argue that that brand has become generationally defining. It's impossible to know that when you do something. You, you, can, you can feel pre-launch, like you should feel pre-launch, like every brand has an opportunity to achieve that because that, that should be part of your thesis behind deploying capital into a company. But it's very rare for, I mean, even the best brand investors have it very, very infrequently. And so it's rare when it does happen. And I, 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 I just think there is magic in that company in every corner of the room. And they have been able to push boundaries around product and branding and storytelling and, you know, efficiencies in their own business in ways that honestly I, I have never seen before in my working career. So it's a, it's, it's a, it's a beautiful thing to watch and, you know, a lucky thing to be a, a, a small, a small part of. Yeah. Tell me about you, how your internet connectivity, I guess. You invest in many of the brands that are also um, maybe co-founded. I'm, I'm such a fan of Yen's Greed. Um, yeah. So I know of Good American, also Brady. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, if he's behind it, your your game, how would you describe that? Well, Yen's is a, a, a wonderful serial entrepreneur and um, there aren't very many people like him. Um, and you know, we've, we've had the great fortune to work together, um, for many years. And obviously he had the, the fortune, you know, even earlier in his career of working with Natalie, um, uh, and Eric with frame denim. Um, and so it's been a long partnership and it's been a long road. And I think, um, like any good partnerships, it's built on trust and respect and admiration and, you know, ideally some level of commerciality. Um, you know, we all want each other to win. Um, but you know, you don't, you don't meet very many people like Jens. That's the truth. Right. And I think what, you know, when you do, you want to try and support those people as much as you can, and you want to try and be a part of their entrepreneurial journey. Um, and so that, that's, that's kind of the easy part of it, right? Like, you know, the hard part is finding as many of those people as you can and being open-minded that, you know, maybe when you're first, you know, when you first meet them, they're not far along in their career enough to have shown that they're capable of the kind of greatness that maybe they are. It becomes, you know, in the end, it's a people, it's a people picking game, right? You want to, you want to, um, find great exceptional entrepreneurs as early as you can. Cause the truth is once they've like overproven themselves, everybody wants to give them money. Money starts to actually become a commodity. So if you're doing your job right, you're building relationships with those people earlier on in their career and, and, and hopefully helping them and supporting them in any way you possibly can. Yes. Well, you must be a good judge of people. Is there somebody or a brand, um, do you consider one that, you know, looking back, you met them or maybe you ha had the opportunity to work with them? Maybe one that got away um, or, yeah, a regret. Uh, on the brand side? Stumped. No, I mean, <laughs> uh, there, listen, there were a few that I regretted that I think have had um, – a challenging time over the last three to six months. Um, so 
when the market drops for some of these companies by 80 or 90%, you start to rethink your regrets. But oh yeah, um, there are a few that come to mind on the beauty side. Um, we never got a chance to really get in front of of Olaplex and Drunk Elephant. Um, uh, we tried, but we didn't. Um, and I deeply admire those businesses. Um, I think they are simple in nature. They are not overskewed. They have a hugely loyal base. Um, they're highly profitable. Um, they manage to sort of work with specific retailers. In the case of Olaplex, really interesting salon model of distribution. Um, I I wish I had been in those brands. Um, yeah. Uh, so that's kind of two examples that come to mind. But, you know, you don't – it's so hard, right, because um, you don't – you know, sometimes you have an opportunity to invest in these things very late in the game. Um, you know, even if there's a success beyond that, sometimes that doesn't, you know, fit your returns model, right? So, you know, we're not in the business of doubling our money. Like, that's not that's not why we come to work every day. We come to work to try and find a really early stage company that sees its way to a really, really material exit over a five, 10 year period. So sometimes we'll see stuff later on and obviously we wish we saw it earlier, but we sort of scratch our head and say, this this is a great business, but it's probably not a great business for imaginary. Um, you know, maybe it needs another home. Um, so that's, you know, that's something to, to, to kind of keep in mind as well. But you can, you can sort of consume yourself with passing. I mean, I remember I, I passed on Pinterest at a $4 million post money valuation. I mean, that was a, a bad decision. But um, it, it's, it's, it's life and it's par for the course. And honestly, there's something wrong. Like you're not seeing enough. If that doesn't happen, because everybody has deals that they wish they had invested in and passed on. And, um, you know, sometimes that opens another door. It opens another opp you know, opportunity. Maybe it drives you to do better as a byproduct of having missed out. So it's all healthy. Yeah, for sure. Well, you met, we're focusing heavily on fashion and beauty, um, apparel and beauty, just because that's obviously glossy uh -huh. space. But um, as you mentioned, some beauty brands that you maybe didn't invest in, like, do you think about the market in that way? Like, um, this coming year, it's really an opportunity for beauty. Let's focus on beauty brands or uh, you wouldn't say year, you'd plan further out. But yeah, do you focus categorically like that? So do we focus categorically on certain verticals within beauty or in like beauty in general? Like this is the year of beauty. In general, kind of like, yeah, we're going to go move more into wellness now. We're a bit too heavy in fashion or it's just an opportunity, an opportunity, I guess. You know, again, it's so hard, right? Because um, you... You know, you can say things like apparel is challenging. I want to invest less in apparel. I'm going to invest less in apparel. And then you say on the flip end, like, look at skims, right? Like, had we had such an aversion towards apparel that we hadn't been a part of that story, I think that would have been a real regret. So, you know, you can't be so prescriptive and narrow-minded that you forget what we were talking about earlier, which is a few great companies tends to be what is the driving force between or across all these funds. And also when 
other people are less interested in a vertical tends to mean that um, the founders that are doing those businesses really want them to work and are doing it for the right reasons. It can also mean that valuations are a little bit more normalized and opportunistic. Um, so there's a bunch of stuff that sort of plays into your favor. Um, you know, truth is apparel is hard. Return rates are an issue. Seasonality is an issue. Um, finding meaningful wholesale partners is not an easy thing to do. Um, it is a challenging vertical. I would argue a more challenging vertical than a beauty. Uh, it's also not a space that traditionally has had nearly as much M&A. So on the beauty side, you have a very clear playbook of who's going to buy this at what scale and at what price. That doesn't happen as often in apparel. And so how you how you get out of the investment after a decade, how the founder sells his or her business is challenging. So that's a long-winded way of saying apparel is harder, but I always believe that there are opportunities in apparel. And I believe that because other people aren't looking, there are probably more opportunities for us than there were before. Um, beauty is sort of a constant area in space. Um, I, you know, I don't, I don't believe in, at least on the consumer product side, I don't believe in the model of um, the probiotic vertical needs disruption through the lens of beauty. So I'm going to meet a bunch of different companies and pick which one I think is the best and deploy capital into it. That has never worked. My mindset has always been, how do I meet as many probiotic companies as possible that are in the ecosystem. And yeah. hopefully when I find one that I think is exceptional um, or a company in another category within wellness is exceptional, I feel like I have the toolkit to be able to take advantage of that and be a part of it. And, um, you know, we backed last year a beautiful, fast-growing uh, color cosmetics brand, which you know well, Westman Atelier. We were not looking for a luxury color cosmetics brand. Like, th that was not in any way an area of focus. But what what happened was we found an exceptional brand and wanted to be a part of the story. Um, and, you, and you know that happens by just making sure that you're constantly looking at as many things as possible in the overall ecosystem. So that's that's kind of the 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 blueprint. I think it's a little different in software and enablement. You know, our, our thesis there is really what are the businesses that are fixing problems within our consumer product portfolio? So where are areas of challenge in the consumer world that can be improved by technology or software? And those pain points we see in real time. And because we see them in real time, we can be much more tactical around, okay, this is something that's got to be fixed. Who is it that's trying to fix it? How do we diligence it through the lens of our portfolio companies as being the client? And how do we deploy capital into it? But I, but I think they are such different verticals and such different ecosystems that your playbook of how you deploy capital needs to be very different. Yes. Ooh, what was your latest, I guess, problem solver, tech company uh, investment? Uh, what was our latest problem solver tech company? We backed a business called Black Crow, 
which is uh, data science software that's working with four or five of our businesses that's helping brands be more thoughtful around their performance marketing spend, giving stronger insights, essentially allowing teams without an internal data science team and infrastructure, or frankly, companies that do have that but want additional technology on top of that team uh, to be more thoughtful and insightful about their business. So that was the last one. That's cool. Well, I'm putting all attention on the founders, but we're running out of time for you for Imaginary Ventures. Uh, what are your goals in the next year or a short term, however you want to swing it in terms of time range? What's next for you? I want everybody to um, lead with patience. Um, that may sound corny, but I think it's really impor important in moments like this when the market is changing at a pace that's so rapid and when the consumer is in such a state of limbo, we don't know really what consumer spending is going to look like for the next 12 months. I think you have to be patient. You have to be patient in your pacing of finding new companies you have to be patient that it will take your existing companies a little bit longer. Um, it just, I think it needs to be a driving KPI for everybody. So that's, that is probably what I am most focused on internally. Um, and then I, I think that I don't know, I'm not smart enough to know when all of this becomes in our rear view mirror and uh, the world looks, um, what's the right word? The world looks um, a little bit more straightforward, but I do know that it will happen at some point. And I think the businesses that can weather the storm and be nimble with cash, thoughtful with team, make hard decisions fast. You know, one of the challenging things that, that I think all of us deal with is sometimes you wait too long to make the hard decisions. You say, oh, well, I'm going to wait it out for six months and then I'm going to reduce my marketing spend or then I'm going to reduce my team. And at that point, you know, you've, you've made a decision six months or you may have made a decision six months too late. So I, I think that the companies that make tough decisions um, early on in these cycles and set themselves up to weather the storm will be the ones that can take advantage of opportunity on the other side of it. We even talk about one more question about like, I mean, we, we talked about the initial investment, but your approach after that in terms of um, how integrated, involved with the companies you are, um, I would think, you know, looming recession, if we're entering a recession, like, are you guys as in the storm as they are, as you're working together, or even connecting these founders to to have some sort of a, a community among, among them? But yeah, what happens after investment? And also, are you bracing yourself, I guess? I... Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm bracing myself for a hard 18 months, and I think everybody should be. And the beauty of that is um, if I'm right, I'm prepared. And if I'm not right, the situation is better than I thought. So it sort of seems like the best outcome, you know, you know, in any situation. Um, we we try and be as additive and supportive of a partner as we can be, understanding that the needs of one business may be very different from another. And so there may be periods where companies are challenged and they need support on, 
you know, everything from hiring to financial planning to partnerships to introductions. And then there may be other points when a company is a little bit later in its journey where there's a little bit more on the sort of classic mentorship, um, you know, strategy um, exit side. Like, I, I, I really do think it varies. Um, you know, in the end, I always lead with honesty and my approach to, to investing as a venture investor is I want to be as supportive as I can. Natalie wants to be as supportive as she can. The rest of the team exactly the same way. But ultimately, we're not owning these businesses. We're not day-to-day operators in them. Like our model doesn't allow for that. We invest in, you know, 10 companies a year, eight to 10 companies a year. So you can't be day-to-day operators of all of those businesses in the same way that a CEO is going to be. And I think you have to be honest about that because I think when a CEO is looking for an investor that's going to run their business, they should be looking for a very different profile of investor than the venture capital ecosystem. And ultimately, you know, what you want is very specific, very targeted support that's going to vary drastically across each of the companies that you invest in. That makes great sense to me. Nick, this was fantastic. I learned a lot. This was so fun. It was so, so great. Oh my gosh. Well, thank you so much for being here. My total pleasure. um, And I hope I see you soon in person. That's all for this episode. Our theme music is by Otis McDonald. If you liked this episode, be sure to share it with someone else you think would. Thanks for listening to the Glossy Podcast.